Well, good evening. So good to see everyone here tonight. As Andrew mentioned, it's a little bit different format. We'll have the opportunity to do a little bit of Q&A and interview uh, this evening. As I was thinking about what we're about to embark on, uh, the passage from Titus chapter 2 verse 1 came to mind where Paul tells Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then, of course, he goes on and uh, gives Titus some direction for teaching those in the church. And what we're doing this evening with the question and answer time uh, is just an opportunity to uh, continue to flesh that out. It was thrilling to receive the uh, number of responses uh, in uh, the questions that we received and very encouraging just to know that our body is filled with people. I mean, we knew it already, but uh, we got to see it tangibly, uh, filled with people who desire to see God honored in the way that they live their lives and uh, had a lot of questions about those things. So just to kind of frame our expectations for this evening, we did get so many questions that we had to kind of go through and we're taking a cross-section of those questions, and some questions won't be addressed tonight just because we know we don't have the time to do that, but we'll plan to address those in the near future. So we're really looking forward to that as well. But without further ado, I'll ask Don to join me on the stage, and Don, I'm really glad that you're back in town. Good to have you back here tonight. So you won't have to preach on Sunday? Yes. I'll have a break. That'll be nice. (laughs) It's Uh, good. It's good to be back. You know, I've been gone a lot since June. I've been in multiple regions of the country with churches smaller than ours, bigger than ours, and uh, just kind of getting a taste of what's happening out there with uh, basically like-minded men. And, uh, you know, but I'm I'm glad to be I'm glad to be home. This is where I want to be. Amen. We're glad to have you. Any uh, anything that you've seen in your time away? Just uh, you know, you've been in different regions of the country over the last few months, and you mentioned in those different ter- churches. But uh, any observations or points of encouragement or yeah, whatever well, for the you church know, here? One of the things that just stood out to me um, as I've been with several of these faithful pastors is just how important it is for us to uh, to stay together and to stick together as as men in ministry across different regions because you know they're facing the same kinds of of uh, difficulties and struggles that, that we are they have uh, church discipline things in their churches and uh, you know deal dealing with their own you know private sorrows and things like that and there's just such a shrinking number of of faithful men, really, that we're that we're like-minded with, and so I, you know, we just want to stick together with them. So I'm hoping that some of them can come and be here, and we can kind of exchange pulpits that way and uh, stand with each other, uh, you know, in, in the days to come. Uh, you know, the the days are evil, and you know, when we have friends, we want to we want to stand with them. That's right. Excellent. Thank you. Well, you were ready to dive into the questions that have yeah, come in here. Yeah, we. <laughs> I've got. I brought a couple of notes up here, but I know it'll throw me curveballs and say, "Well, these notes didn't matter." But my last words before we came up were, "You're going to love the questions you know nothing about." <laughs> I was just kidding. 
<laughs> well, let's let's go ahead and dive in again. We had just so many good questions, um, but we'll start with uh, with taking a question that relates to some of the teaching you've done recently. The last couple Tuesdays, uh, you've encouraged us, taught us uh, about the Christian's influence from uh, Matthew five thirteen through sixteen, um, and you know within that context, a broad segment, I guess you could say, of cultural Christianity assume that the church needs to be politically active. Um, and, and you helped us understand that our influence is rooted in the character that uh, is defined in the Beatitudes. Um, but can you expand on that a little bit for us? What, you know, what is the Christian's influence as it relates to politics uh, how how shall we, can we as individuals uh, you know, should we as individuals uh, be active? Uh, but just uh, if you could expand on that, and that'd be great. Yeah, I think the uh, the key thing to remember is that you know it's a collective you that Jesus is expressing in Matthew five thirteen to sixteen. It's a plural you, and when we when we talk about politics and government and all of that is to distinguish between the mission of the church and what individuals do privately. I was having an interaction with uh, with a man. I don't, he's outwardly, I mean, he's theistic at least, but I don't know, you know, where his, you know, where his true spiritual convictions are, but he's involved in, he's involved in politics. And I think that's, I think that's great. If a Christian has opportunity in politics, that's what they want to pursue. That's one thing, uh, you know. If Christian, you know, and if Christians are engaged in voting, you know, that's good salt on, on the earth. But that's different from what I was really addressing in those messages, it, it, to talk about the the mission of the church and what the church should be doing. The church is not is not an arm of another political party. The church has a spiritual mission to make disciples of Christ, to preach the gospel, and you don't do that through politics. And it's a, it's a real confusion of the gospel if you try to blend politics and the mission of the church. And so when I was preaching from those, you know, from that passage, the point was, you know, this is the mission of the church. And even, you know, and going, going a step further, it's a, um, you know, politics is not the mission of the church. That's one thing. And, and second thing is that the, the influence of the church is not found in politics either. The influence as Jesus defined it. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying what Jesus said. That's all. And it doesn't bother me that it's, dis, you know, that it may sound different than what we're used to hearing from, from, you know, other people. Um, you know, that politics is not the source of our influence. That's not the means through which the influence is, is exercised. It's through the character, as Jesus explained in the Beatitudes, that, that poor in spirit, mourning over sin character that desires God, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's the source of our influence that makes us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Nothing, nothing political. And, you know, I mean, I've, you know, I was a political science major in my undergraduate days. I still have, you know, passing interests in politics, so I kind of watch what happens uh, in things. But, you know, even, even the conservative politicians are a spiritual embarrassment 
You know, there's that congressman, congresswoman from Colorado who's parading her divorce and was, you know, was, uh, you know, found in movie theaters doing inappropriate behaviors that she had to apologize for. And yet she's conservative. Well, we don't want to align ourselves with that and think that, you know, we're going to join forces with people like that. They're not stable spiritually, at the very least, you can say. And so we just want to keep in mind why the church exists. That's what my concern is as a pastor. Why does the church exist and how do we further our influence through what Christ has appointed? You know, and our, our goal is to, com- is to present every man complete in Christ, Colossians 1, 28, not to try to pull the levers of Caesar's, Caesar's government. That never, that never goes well when the church gets too involved in politics. And it's not even effective long-term politically. You know, those of us that are old enough to remember Jerry Falwell and the moral majority, you know, that kind of hit the rocks as soon as Bill Clinton felt came onto the scene, you know, just within a decade. And so it's all passing, shifting, you know, these, you know, and, and we're not dealing with regenerate people predominantly in politics. And so we just have to accept the fact that this world is not our home, that, uh, that politics is not the source of our influence, it's not our mission, and to focus on what Christ gave to us. And we want to follow him as Lord, not try to uh, rearrange the, the, the deck chairs on the political Titanic. So, you know, just to... but but if people want to, I mean, you know, I encourage people to vote their convictions and, you know, I'll probably vote my convictions if as time allows and all of that, you know, we should be involved in the political pop process in that way, but not to pin our hopes on it and not to make that our top priority. It's not our top priority. So as Christians and, and thinking about even the state of our country, be involved as we can as individuals. Um, but, you know, should we anticipate that, uh, you know, America is a Christian nation, it's going to get better and better? Uh, you know, we're going to we're going to. Well, if you want to think that, I guess I mean, I guess you can. But Scripture says that evil men are going to proceed from bad to worse. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of evil men in leadership in our country. That's to be expected. And, you know, the wrath of God is manifested against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And there is no, there is absolute, absolutely no reason to think that there's anything other than the wrath of God abiding upon our country. And, uh, you know, and the, the answer to that is not, is not a bigger Republican majority in Congress. The answer to that is revival from the Spirit of God through the preaching of the Word of God to the conversion of, of sinners far and wide. And what we need is a sweeping revival of the Holy Spirit to come up, to fall down upon us, not, you know, not to gain control of the Senate. I mean, honestly, my friends, honestly, uh, you know, we just need we just need to set our affections higher and have a higher view of the kingdom of God than what the political view of things leads us to to think. I love Romans one, you know, it enumerates our society straight through right through the end of the chapter. Yeah. And what and and in the context of Romans one, what is uh, in in the full context of Romans one? What is the answer to Romans one, 18 through chapter three, verse 20? What is the answer is, you know, Paul says he's eager to go to Rome, not so that he can uh, you know, get a, get a hold of Caesar's household and talk about the different cabinets of government, 
Paul says, I'm eager to go to Rome because I want to preach the gospel there. And then he goes on and, you know, and he explains in the subsequent 11 chapters what the gospel is that he's going to proclaim. And, you, and you're not going to find politics anywhere in that. It's justification by faith, sanctification as a result of that, the security of the believer as a result of that. And, uh, you know, this, is, this just not, does not fit with the paradigm that's being peddled to us by other segments of Christianity. And just to circle right back around, that's... I'm sorry, I'm not more clear about these things. <laughs> the, uh, the call Actually, of the I'm, church... I'm, I'm not sorry. ...is to, be, is to protect the confession of, the, of Christ, yeah. according to 1 yeah, Timothy 3. Yeah, you know, and you go to the pastoral epistles, the, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. You know, and Jesus said three times, three times in uh, John, I think it's 18, you know, he, he speaks about my kingdom, but he said, you know, he makes it plain, my kingdom is not of this world. And as he was speaking to Pilate, you know, he's a king, but his kingdom is, is not of this world. And it's just a reversal of, of, of the order of redemption to turn the gospel and the kingdom of Christ into something that is preeminently a political enterprise. It's, a, it's, it's traitorous, it's, 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 it's treasonous, I should say, against the gospel that we've been entrusted with. Amen. Amen. Well, I think that's a good segue to the next question as well. Um, that deals a question that's raised often uh, about our philosophy of ministry uh, here at Truth Community Church. And, you know, we love to talk about our philosophy of ministry, why we do what we do in order to carry out the uh, instructions of the Gospels, the, the pastoral epistles, and to do that uh, in a biblical way. And one of the questions uh, addressed that specifically and um, raised the question that uh, you spent a number of years at Grace Community Church. Yeah, I was there 20 years. That's a, that's a lot of years, two decades. Um, and at Grace, there's a number of tr maybe traditional ministry programs uh, that, that were used there. And at TCC, we approach things a bit differently when it comes to programs. We, we approach things a lot differently. <laughs> Just speak the truth. All right, all right. I'll try to be more clear. Thank you. Uh, so can you clearly address that for us, <laughs> address the, uh, the distinction, the thinking behind our uh, philosophy? Why, why are we do what we do? Why are we not more like Grace Community Church when the pastor of Truth Community Church came from Grace Community Church? Well said. Yeah, I mean that's that's you know it's it, it is a common it's a common question, and uh, you know and I'm not I'm not going to duck it. I'm just not going to duck it. Um, I love Grace Community Church. I always will. I have many friends there. Some of my best lifetime friends are in the highest levels of leadership there. I wrote a book about John MacArthur. John MacArthur has spoken here many times. Mm -hmm. And so there should never be any sense of, of, of question about my personal love and loyalty and, um, you know, and uh, relationships with those men. I would lay my life down for them, uh, you know, especially those that, that have been in lay leadership there for a long time. I would lay my life down for them and consider it a privilege to, to do so. I'm going to be I'm going to be out there next week for a grace to you board meeting. Sure. So all of that, all of that, just to say that 
I don't, I don't, no one should ever question my qualifications as someone who's supportive of Grace Community Church. Full stop. I don't, I don't want any wedge to be possibly in anyone's mind about that. Um, there is no space between us. But having, having said that, um, you know, I have, I have another role here as a pastor, and I have a different authority as a pastor, and we as elders, and we as a church, there's a different, there's a different authority. Listen, what happens at another church with different resources and a different history 2,000 miles away is not the authority for our philosophy of ministry. Uh, you know, Grace, you know, we've been in existence for 12 years, you know, roughly, not even that, and as a church, less than that. Um, the, yeah, we, that's, this is a problem with Q and A's. You start thinking about a lot of things you want to say all at once and it <laughs> short circuits the, short circuits the brain. Great, Grace Community Church has, you know, 25 times the number of people that we do. Their budget and their revenue is probably 20, 25 times what ours is. Their history goes back 65 years compared to ours. You know, and it's not a it's not a legitimate comparison to put to put a, a newer church side by side with that and say, why aren't why aren't you like them? I mean, just on a human level that and a resource level, that's not a that's not a that's not a good comparison. It's not a clear thinking comparison. And besides that, Grace Community Church has John MacArthur and we've got, you know, you and me. Yeah. And a couple other guys, you know, I mean, this isn't this isn't even fair. You know, we're bringing a we're bringing a, a plastic fork to a to a gunfight. You know, <laughs> if you think about it in in those crass terms, Grace Community Church and what they do is not the authority for us. Scripture is. And what does what does Scripture say about philosophy of ministry? What does Scripture say about the early church? And what does it describe in the early church doing? Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You know, and, you know, however poorly we do it, we do that. You know, that's, that's our philosophy of ministry. And it's simple. It's clear, it's direct, and it's simple. And it's done that by it's done that by design. And I believe, and our elders believe, it's not just, you know, the opinion of, you know, one pastor. Our elders as a board believe that um, that the Bible points us to simplicity in ministry, not complexity. I was with in North Carolina this past week, I was with the other speaker was a man named Dr. Ian Hamilton, who's the president of a Presbyterian seminary in, in England. And he was like-minded. He, he's been a pastor for decades. He said, you know, we have, we have our Sunday services, we have midweek, we, we visit people, we pray, that's ministry. And, you know, I could have hugged him when he said words to, when he said words to that effect. And Am I saying too much? No, this is good. Yeah, please okay. keep on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think it helps to be clear, even if it seems a little bit controversial, when when you say it. Two things. One, I recognize fully that people will come here 
uh, perhaps drawn by the preaching, thinking they want a certain kind of preaching. But when they don't see all the programs that they're used to, and, you know, vacation Bible school and separate women's ministry and separate youth ministry and separate children's ministry and big music ministries and all of that, I realize fully that when people come in drawn by the preaching but, but carrying those expectations that that's what a church should do, I realize that a lot of people are going to do a U-turn and go away. I'm okay with that. You know what? Because I know, I know that they're, they're going to, <laughs> they're perfectly capable of finding churches that will provide that for them. I don't mean this to be as derogatory as it, as it sounds, but churches like that are a dime a dozen. I mean, this is the whole reason that I'm doing the, the series that, that many people have appreciated, some haven't, called Building a Christian Mind. This is the predominant mindset, all of, all of this program-driven stuff. And I'm not talking about Grace Community Church here. I'm speaking broadly. I've already vindicated my love for Grace Church, and I will never say a critical word publicly about Grace Community Church. We might as well go home if that's what people are hoping I'll do. That's not it. But... The predominant mindset is, is in churches is we got to do this and we got to preach in a certain soft way in order to get as many people as possible in. Well, look where that's led us. Look where that has led the church and look at where it's led society in the vacuum of spiritual leadership and the vacuum of, of spiritual teaching. Churches that do, with, with a lot of programs are a dime a dozen. And their proliferation has not done much to advance the kingdom of God as evidenced by what's all around us. And so I do not feel beholden, and our elders do not feel beholden to what is basically, you know, speaking broadly, a failed model of ministry. So why would, why would we want to do what everybody else is doing when it's proven to be, you know, superficial and, and broadly ineffective? And so the criticism that we're not doing what other churches do doesn't affect me. And I want people to come, I want people to stay, but if they leave because we don't give them what they want, that's the way it goes. That's one of the prices of what we, of what we do. You know, what I would encourage people to do that come in and we, we talk with people, I'm, I realize I'm rambling here, but that's one of the things about a Q&A. You know, we encourage people to wait for membership. We, don't, we tell people, wait a year. Give it, give it a lot of time to get to know us. Because what we want, we want people to know us before they join with us. And also, also we, want, we want to see on our end, you know, that people are willing to come in and say, I want to support what you do rather than bringing an agenda for you to change what you do in accordance with what my presuppositions are as someone relatively new to the church. And, you know, we are who we are. We know why we are what we are. And, you know, and, and, the, and that's the direction we're going. That's leadership. And, um, you know, and, and truth, not, not the church, but the principle of truth isn't, isn't uh, evaluated by counting noses or saying what the other guy, what the other guy does. You know, 1 Corinthians 1, you know, there, Paul rebuked the division in Corinth. I am of Cephas. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. He says, well, you know, were any of these guys crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? You know, and so we don't, we don't line ourselves up after, after men. We look 
we, we do our best to come to Scripture to understand what we believe it to say, and then in all of our imperfection and weakness and failure, we try to aim ourselves after what we understand the Word of God to say and, and obey it. And, you know, the next verse you find in Scripture that authorizes a youth pastor will be the first one that's, that's found. And I just use that as an example. And yet this is so, you know, in so many churches, that's so assumed that you'd have a youth pastor that no one even stops to say, where do you find a youth pastor in the Bible? Yeah. You no, know, it's not there. Yeah. You know, the pastor is the pastor of the youth. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I get, you know, it, we've come by our position honestly, and we just want to be faithful to it. And just to expand it a, a little bit here, would you say that uh, it, looking at church history, that the the program, the programs that have been introduced in, into uh, church ministry broadly, are a relatively new invention that have uh, that arose out of uh, deviant theology. Um, sure, yeah, I would say that. What well, you obviously have things in mind that, at, that prompt you to ask that. Why don't you kind of expand on your own answer your own question and expand on your own thought there? Oh man. I put myself in hot water. Yeah. That that, <laughs> well, that bounced off me and stuck on you. Uh, well, when I think of the of the programs and the you know dividing up of families when they walk in the door to church and the need for uh, every felt need uh, to be met um, by special interest programs in the church. Yeah, I just yeah. think of, of of decisionalism that we're you know we're we're trying to please everybody um, and get them to follow God uh, in in a manipulative way um, versus the central preaching of the Word of God to the entire church, young and old together, um, broken homes. Uh, broken lives. What what they need is is the preaching of the word, not a not a special interest yeah. group. Yeah, that's definitely true. And you know, we are without apology a pulpit driven ministry, not a program driven ministry. Um, the because we believe that the word of God is what He uses to change lives and to strengthen His people and to convert the lost. And we can't do any, and because that's our conviction, we can't do anything other than be focused on the pulpit. And a lot of times, you know, less is more. You know, less is more. If you dilute the focus on the pulpit by keeping people so very busy doing all kinds of other stuff, you know, you, the word gets lost in the shuffle and it just becomes one more thing that we do among many, many other things. And the other, the other thing that I would say, and not every church, you know, follows this, even the, that's like-minded, and it, it saddens me when I preach in a church like this, and, you know, they take the kids out and then just let the, you know, and you're just preaching to the adults. I don't want that. I want the kids to be under the Word of God. And in our church, you know, my series on youth ministry philosophy, if people haven't listened to that, they really should hear that because that's really central and foundational to everything that we're saying. Our philosophy of youth ministry is to have the youth be a part of the ministry. That's it. That's it, you know, and and I like the fact, I like the fact that our children the, the children of our families can come here and they can have a direct, direct personal access to a guy like Dr. Andrew Snelling. 
and they, they can see what it's like to have a man like him love them and take interest in their questions and explain things to them. Well, if we had a different philosophy of ministry that separated them out, they'd never even get to know him. Right. And that would be a travesty. That would be a great, great loss. And, and, you know, and I, you know, I wish, I wish even more of the families that do identify with us would take advantage of the fullness of that opportunity. But we believe in, we believe that the unity of church is expressed in part by multi-generational relationships where children are as welcome as senior saints in the services. And, the, you know, that we, we minister to all of them in the same way. And it's not segmented. And you don't find the egg separation in Scripture. I don't think you find the age separation in Scripture either. And, and just anecdotally, it's, it's uh, amazing how often a conversation, whether it's pastoral or uh, you know, just even within homes where people will t- tell us afterwards, uh, you know, a conversation was taking place around uh, a situation, a struggle. And then you know, that week at church from the pulpit, that very thing was addressed, whether it was a scripture reading, pulpit prayer, the, the message itself. And that has happened, that happens over and over and over and over again. And, you know, that's not why we do it because of, of the experience, but the, that's what God does through what we do. That that's what God uses. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And there's, there's a lot more that, that could be said and should be said, but you know, the other, the other thing that I would say about it um, you know, if you read, if you study at all what the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, if you read those at all, you realize that, that for example, Jesus said to the church in Sardis, said, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And, and the church at Ephesus in chapter 2 was where there was a lot of, you know, there was a there were a lot of things in that church that Jesus could meant, could commend, but he said you've lost your first love. It is a serious, profound mistake for anybody to judge a any ministry simply by outward appearances and say all of the programs are a sign of life. That's not necessarily true. You can have the programs without sanctification. You can have the programs without love. You can have the programs without. Uh, you know, without the blessing of God. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that God's pleased with us by the fact that I'm making this point. It's just, you know, we've got to judge with righteous judgment, not according to appearance. And, you know, I'll, I'll go to my grave saying those things. Yeah. And it's in good company to make the pulpit central. Lloyd-Jones did that in the churches that he went to. um, Yeah. He, he went in and shut down the programs turned off the choir, said, get rid of the platform, use it for wood in the, in the <laughs> furnace. Uh, you know, we're going to focus on the pulpit. Well, now, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, everybody loves Martin Lloyd-Jones now, but in, in his day, there was a lot of resistance to the very principles that he acted upon that, you know, we believe that in a faint shadow of a way that we're trying to pursue also. That's good. Well, like you said, we could talk a lot more on this. Yeah. Um, pretty easy question here. Uh, we t- recently transitioned to the ESV, uh, using that primarily for yeah, the Yeah, the English Standard Version. So can you tell us a little bit what was behind that decision? Yeah, you, you watch what happens in Bible translation and uh, the, you know, the publisher of the New American Standard Bible 
um, which issued the 1995 version that I had been using. In 2020, they came out with a, an, an updated translation, and that's usually not a good sign. <laughs> and they were they were outspoken about wanting to, you know, modify their approach to gender statements and things like that. And you know, they were they would keep the night as I recall, they're going to keep the 1995 version available, but then have the 2020. And I didn't like the direction of the translation philosophy. Um, and I knew that it was just going to engender tremendous confusion mm -hmm. to say, we use the New American Standard 95, and, you know, well, I've got a New American Standard. Why is it different than what yours? All of that just generates so much confusion. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm not interested in that confusion. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm very comfortable with the English Standard Version. You were using the ESV. Andrew was using the ESV. Uh, Dane, I can't recall exactly what what he reads from. I think it's something that predated the King James Version. <laughs> <laughs> if only there was a camera with Dane <laughs> on Dane there with his hand in his face in his hands. But, you know, and it, it just it just unified what all of us as elders were were doing with a perfectly acceptable translation that that could stand the test of time in a, in a better way. And so it just, um, you know, I didn't view it as a very big change. And, um, you know, but that was that was the thinking behind it. You, you have to think long term. Is this sustainable long term? New American Standard was not going to be sustainable long term. People have asked me about the Legacy Standard Bible. Again, uh, you know, I respect everything they do, but it's so new. I don't, I don't know how available that's going to be long term. And, uh, you know, and so I, I went with something that I felt like was established and would be as uh, available long term. I, I, I don't want to have to go through another version change because of, of the idiosyncrasies of publishers down the road. Yeah. So, you know, for someone that's used to a different version like Dane, um, any any uh, words of wisdom if they have a, you know, a beloved version and that, you know, comes up from time to time? Should they get an ESV? Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, if I would encourage you to at least bring an ESV to uh, to the services so it's easier to follow along, you know, over the over the course of, of years, you know, I've read through different. In, read through the Bible in different versions, New King James Version. I think I did the NIV one year and all of that. And so, you know, I don't, I, I don't get as stressed out about Bible translations as some people do. But just as a practical matter, to be following in church the same version that the preacher's using, probably healthy and, and facilitates comprehension. Good. No, thank you. Um, pivoting to a, a different topic here, uh, a question came up about prayer. Uh, referencing Spurgeon as uh, saying that prayer reflects the health of the church. Um, so, what what kind of direction would you offer to someone seeking to grow in that area and you know looking at our church? Well, I know you've so, thought I, you've given thought to that. Maybe you could answer that question and you know okay. let me take a sip of water. <laughs> All right, I'll give it a stab. <laughs> um, you know, prayer, anytime you answer a question about prayer, you just feel completely unqualified to answer a question about prayer. Um, it's We're supposed to pray without ceasing. 
and uh, that's commanded, and you read that verse, and you're immediately convicted. Um, so, with that caveat, um, you know, speaking personally, how do how do we approach prayer? Um, first of all, look at look at what Jesus taught. I mean, what better place to start than when the disciples asked Jesus, "How shall we pray?" and He told them. And meditate on that. Listen to uh, Pastor Don's messages uh, on the Lord's Prayer. And start with what Jesus said about pray, praying. Um, look at Jesus' prayer in John 17. Um, what he's praying about, what, he, what, what, are, what, what the things are on his mind as he goes to the cross. Um, and, you know, then there are many other places in Scripture that give us models of prayer. In the Old Testament, you know, we have a whole book of Psalms that many of those are prayers. Um, and so saturating your mind with Scripture is, uh, is the place to start uh, when you think about pursuing, pursuing prayer. Um, and then, you know, something I found helpful is, is particularly when I'm having difficulty concentrating because it, it can be difficult to concentrate in, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Um, but you've probably heard of the ACTS, A-C-T-S uh, um, um, paradigm of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Um, and it's very close to the Lord's Prayer, but um, one, of the, one of the things within that that was personally rich over time was that aspect of confession and learning to confess your sins to the Lord, particularly after a season of adoration. You look at the glory of God and think about the glory of God, who He is, and then look at yourself and begin confessing your sins. And uh, as one one writer, I, I don't remember who it was, but a Puritan writer um, alluded to the fact that you go from confessing specific sins to ultimately just confessing your general sinfulness. Um, and that practice of confession and repentance is critical to a healthy prayer life because we're not going to God to prescribe how we want God to act, what He, what we want Him to do. We're, we go to God to submit ourselves to the God of heaven and to humbly ask Him to work according to His will, what He sees good and fit. And uh, to deal with our pride, we need seasons of confession and repentance. Um, and so that's a critical part of, of praying in, in private, uh, just learning how to uh, be honest with yourself and let let the conviction of the Spirit of God work uh, in your soul and uh, and responding to that. Yeah, you know, and as you're saying these things, um, one thing that occurs to me when the church gathers, especially on Sunday for, and we, uh, you know, you or I, one of the other elders, leads in corporate prayer. Mm. You know the to you know I, I don't know what people are actually thinking as they listen to that because uh, I'm in the I'm in the act and you know I'm I'm praying <laughs> you know I don't have time to be thinking as I'm praying what other people are thinking so all of that to say is to realize that um, 
you know, that, that we gather at least week by week, there's a time to, in a sense in which this is a corporate prayer where an elder is leading prayer and there's opportunity for, for you to amen that quietly, privately in your heart, to, to pray along with that and to agree with that and to affirm it as your own, as your own prayer. Um, you know, and there's a, you know, there's an aspect of instruction in prayer week by week that we do, even though we're not yeah. intending to instruct on prayer. The very example of corporate prayer gives us, gives us a sense of direction in that as well. And I could only affirm everything, uh, all of the other things that you said there. Prayer is not about getting God to do what we want him to do. Th- that's, that's the first step toward growing in prayer mm-hmm. is to abandon that consumeristic, selfish mindset of trying to dictate our will to God. You know, our goal is to submit our will to God, to submit to him, to depend upon him, to worship him. And, you know, and I've come to some of the same conclusions that you were describing. You know, you can confess sin. I said a bad word. I thought a bad thought and and all of that. But, you know, the longer you go, you just realize, Lord, I don't even know the beginning of my sinfulness. What can I do except agree with Scripture that that my heart is corrupt, that uh, that I am not fully devoted to your glory? I confess that to you. Change me and... Um, uh, you know, and, and you're just casting yourself even more dependently upon the Lord for his grace and mercy. Yeah. And you, you come to a point even in a, at a practical level where when when criticisms are hurled your way, practicing prayer in that manner, you realize, you know, the worst thing anyone could say about me is actually rather nice. Compared to uh, compared what the to reality what I is, yeah. know about myself, or and don't know about myself, uh, because of the, yeah, you know what heart. you just said is so crude. What I don't know about myself, you know, there there been there been many times where I said, Lord, I, I don't even know, I don't even know the depth of it, and so I'm confessing to you that which I don't even know, mm-hmm. but that you know, and you know, I don't. The heart's deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? I don't even understand the sinfulness of my own heart. Lord, I just cast all of that upon you and, and trust that Christ is sufficient even for that. Yeah. And, and it's those seasons of personal prayer that really contribute to effective gathered prayer. When we have different prayer meetings, you know, those, those times are times that ideally uh, flow out of the, of the personal prayer life of those gathered you know, we're not we're not gathering even in, in the same sense. Well, let's gather so we can get God to do whatever. It, it's a it's a gathering out of the a love for God, a love for one another, obedience to Scripture, but out of the fullness of what's happening in our own lives uh, as well, not as a replacement for that. Yeah, that's right. Um, lots again, lots of could be uh, said about prayer. Love love talking about that uh, that that topic Um, yeah you know the one thing that that you haven't said and that shouldn't be said uh, and what's striking to notice by its absence is that we haven't we haven't said well if you know if you're going to be serious about prayer you got to be up at 4 a.m you don't you know and you set you know it's got to be two or three hours i mean that's what luther did wasn't it and uh and all of that and all of those outward forms uh you know that's not the that's not the place to start. 
I like to say that the the outward form in, in time and, uh, and and all of that will take care of itself as you work on the attitudes of prayer that that relate to humility, confession, dependence, worship, those things will naturally fill out time. But if you just start by saying, I got to pray more, you know, you've lost the battle before it begins. Yeah, it's not a liturgical checkbox. That's right. Uh, It is a developing relationship with the God of heaven. And the more that we know him, there's a growing naturalness, a natural desire to speak with him. Yeah. And that's what prayer is. And it's a, you know, and it's, but the, the original question that was submitted that prompted all of this is it, it's a great question. And you can, we can kind of sympathize with the disciples when, when they said, they heard hmm. Christ pray and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. I, right. I have no idea. I have, have, you know, Lord, I'm lost unless you lead me in this. And so there's, you know, we're all going to feel an, inadequ- an inadequacy in prayer, and uh, and and that's probably the 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 first starting point of it. If we if we think we've got a a a formula that we can follow and that that's going to make us good prayers and all of that, you know, it's it's just not the way to go. It's yep. a matter it's a matter of the heart as opposed to the outward form. And when, First and foremost, when the disciples said we need to devote ourselves to prayer and the preaching of the word, uh, prayer prayer is hard work. Yeah, uh, it is much harder than running programs. Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, you know, and and just yeah, I, I should. Churches that want the churches that want a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of programs, or basic. And, and put those demands on their pastors, smaller churches with single staff pastors or anything. They're, they're turning, they, they, when they demand that, they turn their pastor into an activity director as opposed to a man of God, a man of the word, a man of prayer. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. Mary's chosen the better part. That's right. Sin in Jesus' feet. Transitioning from the church to the home. Okay. Um, Instructing our children is a vital part of our responsibility as parents, you know, taking what we receive here, bringing it to the home. And uh, a while back, you'd mentioned uh, a book that you plan to publish uh, along those lines. Um, I think it's, uh, it's Will You Tend the Lambs was the yeah. working title. Yeah, so, that's the working title. Any update on that? Well, um, let's let's put it this way. It's, it's uh, that the work the initial form of the manuscript is sitting in my file cabinet waiting patiently for me to come back and to pick it up and to get back to it. Um, the, um, you know, I, I want, I want to do that book. I've done a lot of work on it, a lot of thinking about it, but just more immediate priorities have, have taken me away from it kind of reminds me of Jude 3 you know Jude said I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation but I have to write about something else in light of subsequent events and uh, you know and so you know my my problem is is that I've got I'm, I'm I've got a half dozen books that are in different stages of of production and uh, you know I my, my great hope is that before I die I'll be able to get them all done sometime uh, but it's it's hard it's hard to it's hard that the writing the writing process just takes 
some exclusive attention mm. that I don't find easy to give to it on an extended basis. And so I try to fit it in when I can. And, you know, I'll trust the Lord for what the outcome of it is. Um, it's, and that's not a complaint at all. I'm, I'm blessed to do what I do. It's just a statement of reality and explains why I would announce something like that. And then you'd never hear, hear from it again. You know, it's where did, uh, what, what area of darkness did that get hidden into? Um, yeah, and writing like is a, is a, one of the more strategic parts of your ministry, right? I mean, I want it for, to be, for the oh, you know, for the time that I have left, you know, I've got a lot of writing that I want to do. And I don't know, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I'm asking the Lord, uh, you know, give me 25 more years where I could finish some preaching, do some writing before I have to go. So I've got something that I can leave behind to, you know, to a future generation. That's a great, great burden of my heart. And, uh, you know, and I, it, it's, it's entirely in the Lord's hands as to whether he gives that to me or not. But I'm asking, and if he doesn't give it to me, that'll be okay. But it won't be, it won't be, I won't have, but not because I hadn't asked. Well, I, I speak, I know for many, we've benefited already from the books that you have been able to publish and we're very grateful uh, for the labor that you've already invested in. Um, that helps us to know how to be praying for you as well, uh, that the Lord would open those doors according to his time and his will. Yeah, so I thank you for it. that. Thank you. Um, well, this is a perfect segue into what is the greatest challenge for a pastor? Is it that you can't write? Hmm. Um, and, and a great question uh, that came in. What's the greatest challenge for a pastor? And along with that, what's the greatest challenge for the church? Yeah, the, um, uh, I, have a, I have a theory. I, I know what's true for me. I've answered this question publicly before. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think it's true for every pastor, uh, whether they would say so or not. But, you know, just speaking from my personal uh, self-assessment, the greatest, the greatest challenge I have as a pastor is, is just my own uh, sanctification or lack, <laughs> lack thereof. You know, if you're, you know, if you're growing in sanctification, then you're going to be content with your circumstances. You're going to be productive with your time. You're going to be, um, you know, loving toward others, not just in the church, but with your family, with your with your wife and all of that. And, you know, if, if I if the Lord would instantly grant me anything, I would ask for greater sanctification because everything flows from that. You minister from your own sanctification or lack thereof. And, you know, just speaking more broadly, I can't remember where I was reading this, but it's, uh, it's helpful to remember. People sometimes want, this is off, I'm going off, off uh, track here, and I had no idea that this was going to pop into my mind. But people will often wonder you know, how could a guy be a, a, an effective pastor, and he was such a good preacher, and yet he disqualified himself morally in the ministry? And there's a, there's a very good biblical understanding there that just you, you, you hear it's articulated, and then everything, a lot of things open up to you. The fact that a man is gifted does not mean that he's sanctified. And you can see that so clearly in the book of 1 of Corinthians. They were gifted. They had a lot of gifts, and 
uh, and, and all of that, but they weren't sanctified. And the mere, the mere bestowal of a gift by the Spirit on a man or a woman doesn't mean that they're going to be sanctified in their, in their use of it. And you can, you know, and a man in the pulpit can, can pursue, you know, can do what he does without being sanctified in his, in his private life. And eventually the Lord has his ways of exposing the hypocrisy of that, and, and people are left to wonder. But, but the, the mere element of giftedness does not mean that a man is sanctified. And so for, in my opinion, ministers of the gospel have to want not only to exercise their giftedness, and, you know, every, every minister would love to see his, his influence broader than what it is, but it's it's more important that he hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew five six. It's more important that he seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew six thirty three, and all these things will be added to you. That's more important. And uh, pastors engage in the same internal battles for sanctification and you know mixed desires, mixed motives as as anyone else. And so every pastor and I put myself at the top of this list, needs to grow in those matters of sanctification. And if you do, then the other things will take care of them, take care of themselves. That's on an individual level. You know, what, you know, the challenges for a church, you might articulate a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, it's convicting, isn't it? On a, when you're preaching week by week, and I'm not saying I'm saying from my own experience here to... Then why were you saying you as yeah, you were looking well, at me? You, you plural, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you all. Um, to come across the passage, work on the passage, come back to the passage that you're preaching that week and realize it's dealing with you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I've, I just get accustomed. I just get accustomed to it. And sometimes I'll say this in the course of preaching sometimes i won't but i just i just get accustomed as i'm as i'm looking at my notes and preach looking out and preaching and looking at the text and and just saying man this is all about this is all about me and you know and you're just you're just convicted your own preaching convicts you it's a kind of a weird <laughs> experience um but it's but it's very it's very real it's what you're describing and uh you know the as we preach the word it's hopefully it's sanctifying us you know, even in the act of preaching. Yeah, that's right. Any any further elaboration on the challenges of the church that the church that a church faces? Are, are you asking about the church broadly, or Truth Community Church in particular? Um, I think the question, if I remember, well, well, you won't forget me. how okay. it was submitted. Just <laughs> just uh, make it let's, your own. Let's make it. Let's make it local. What for for our church? Yeah, the. Um, let me let me say let me say this, um, you know, kind of tying it in with some of the travels that I've done in ministry and the other places. Um, you know, since June, I've been in like five different five different states, um, and uh, with a lot of appreciation for the congregations that have been there, predominantly just sweet people that are affirming and encouraging in ministry and all of that. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I have a, a unique and special love for, for this church. Yeah. This, is, this is my home. This is where my heart, this is where my heart is. And there are just so many remarkably 
fine believers in Christ at at the upper age of of the spectrum and at the middle and and throughout and we just have a wonderfully a wonderfully fine congregation and and uh, some of the finest Christians that I know attend Truth Community Church and I'm and I'm very very grateful uh, for that and you know I include the broad sweep I include you guys in in what I'm saying um, and so so I speak from a perspective of of excel still more okay is the is you know that's the biblical you know Paul would firm a church and then he'd tell him excel still more and it's it's in that perspective and um, you know and I think speaking corporately not about any particular individuals I think corporately the 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 threat uh, the the threat that a church is always going to be faced with is to is to uh, is to recognize its own temptation and even sinfulness in being discontent with the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. It's it's one thing to come and to sit in an in an auditorium and listen to the word be preached. It's another thing to actually obey it and to obey it joyfully and to you know and to willingly uh, you know submit to it as opposed to resisting it if it comes in the matter of you know pastoral admonishment or in you know even in philosophy in philosophy of ministry and. You know, it, it um, uh, you know, speaking over the course of time, you know, over, over a decade, not about any particular incident in, in recent history, you know, it's grieved me over, over the course of time to just see a pattern. People come for a while, seems like they're growing, and then you realize that, you know, the seed there fell on shallow ground, and they really, they really didn't want the word. You know, and they, they weren't committed enough to be consistent in gathering with the fellowship of God's people under the word. And they, they wanted other things out of life and other priorities. And church got in the way of that. And the word of God got in the way of, of their, you know, of their, of their aspirations. And that's, you know, and, you know, I, I, you know, figuratively speaking, I just put my, head in my hands and I weep over that as I see that taking place because the long-term implications of that for life are dramatic for you know if it's if it's families that are going that direction and just casting adrift and not really making building and structuring their lives around participation in the church ultimately it it comes down to and no one wants to hear you say this so I'll say it so you don't have to um, Thank you. You know, it comes down to, you know, that, you know, you, there's just there's a lack of contentment with with the word. There's a lack of desire to be under the authority of the word and and a resistance to the authority that God establishes in a local church. And and that's that's when as a pastor, you realize that a church isn't all that it might appear to be on on the outside. Mm-hmm. And having done a lot of work in preparation for my series on Revelation, recently having gone through Revelation two and Revelation three in a lot of, lot of depth, you know, I'm just I'm just struck and haunted by what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, 
you know, he, he said, I, I know your works and, you know, your doctrine. You don't accept false teachers. And it all sounds so really good. Everything that he said, you're thinking, man, this must be a really, really good church. And he says, but I have this against you. you you've left your first love. Hmm. You don't love me. And, you know, and it's just astonishing to realize that those outward things could be there and that Christ, who knows their works, who knows their hearts, who knows everything about them, would look at them and say, you've, you've, you've left your first love. Mm. What Christ said to a church is obviously then what would be true of individuals. And you see a broad spectrum of, of people over the years, and you just realize, Paul said in Philippians 3, I say this even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross. Many walk of whom I... Uh, of whom I spoke, and now I speak even weeping that they're enemies of the cross. They walked away. They left. First John, they, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. I'm not saying that someone can't leave Truth Community Church and be a Christian. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying, you ask me, what, the, you know, what about a church? Well, you know, there's, there's an outward conformity that is not always an expression of an inward love for the sufficiency of the Word, an inward love for Christ, a real heart life submission and conformity to the authority of the word and that's that's always going to be the greatest challenge that a church faces it would be better for us if there were violent people protesting outside our door and and making it difficult for us to gather together corporately and and having a sense of fear and danger it'd be better to be in that position than to be in that in that quagmire of mediocrity that is not content with the word that loves other things in the world more than than we love Christ. Mm. And that's that's the biggest challenge that a church faces. You go through that and you could interpret you could interpret the whole of Revelation two and three, those seven letters to the churches, you would find that unifying principle in everything that they said. And let me say one other thing, uh, <laughs> Nathaniel, about that. You know, and, and just going back People just think in such carnal ways about the church. And if you see a big church with a lot of things happening and a lot of people going there, people say that must be, you know, that's a successful church. You look at a small church and, you know, you know, modest, modest ministry, modest budget and all of that. And, you know, what are they doing wrong? That is not the way Christ looks at the church. You read what Christ says to the church at Philadelphia. He says, you have, but a, you have a little power, but, but I love you, and I'm going to set before you a door that no man can shut. Christ looked totally beyond the outward appearances and, and commended that church that had little power, little resources, probably little outward influence. But Christ said, you're loyal, you're devoted, you know, and, and it's unfiltered, un qualified commendation of that church whereas the church that outwardly had had the appearance of life laodicea sardis ephesus those he, he rebukes those churches and so we just cannot think about these things in human terms as if we're counting noses and determining who has the best church that is not how christ thinks about the church and paul in second timothy two fourteen, really through chapter 4 when he's dealing with Timothy and helping him with the church matters. I mean, you could go through that passage and find almost every kind of church issue uh, in those chapters. He keeps coming back to Scripture. Scripture. Study to show yourself approved. Mm. 
Go back to the scriptures that you were taught when you were young. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Preach, Preach the, the word. word. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So as a church and as individuals in the church, these are the things that, you know, I would admonish, encourage, exhort people to examine in, examine in their own lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the... Um, you know what good is having a time like this if you're not going to be if you're not going to be candid about it and try to actually help people you know what what good is it going to be live by sound doctrine if you someone to ask me what makes you lose sleep these are the kinds of things that i that cause me to look lose sleep as i look out on as people come people go some stay some leave you know that's that's what concerns me is that that life priorities life choices reflect a, a you know you know the tree by its fruit and a life that isn't really interested in god's word I, you know that's that that ain't good yeah that's right that makes pastors like me lose sleep at night yeah, yeah. what's going to happen to these people you know and if their salvation is real how is it that these things are treated so casually and and indifferently with their life choices you know it it, it grieves me it grieves me. It worries me, you know, especially in light of what Jesus said. Many will say to me on that day, and it's not a biblical picture, but I just kind of picture myself standing at the side watching people filter through judgment say, oh, I was so afraid of that. And, you know, and oh, no, Lord, not, no, I know them. I preach to them. Oh, God, don't send them away. And they've, they've got to be sent away because they never knew him. They didn't even want to. You ask me what the problem in the church is. I think that's it. These kinds of things, you know, will shorten my life. Andrew started with one of my favorite verses. God's word is settled forever in heaven. Psalm 119.89. And that's part of the grief, right? When we have the comfort of God's word that is forever and it's eternal and exchange that for the for the trivets of the world. Yeah, you know, so people the, people treat worship and treat their commitment to the church like it's a it's an entertainment preference. You know, I'll go to church this week because there's not a ball game on that I want to watch. This is not our our week to go camping uh, or whatever. You know, and you know, people can go on vacations. That's okay. I watch sporting events on television. That's okay. But I'm just talking about a life pattern. People don't even realize what they're doing. You know, you'd ask a lot of people, you know, are you faithful to your church? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, if they looked at their calendar and saw what they actually did, you know, they're here one time out of, you know, they're here a quarter of the time. And, you know, and they're deceived into thinking they're faithful. And it's just not, that's just not the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. You know, our commitment to the church isn't an entertainment preference. It should be that which we structure our life around. Everything else fits in around that, around supporting the fellowship of God's people, of being under the preaching of the Word of God, of, you know, of not abandoning, you know, the gathering of the saints. That's a critical, central aspect of biblical Christianity. And we treat it like it's an optional add-on as long as it doesn't inconvenience us or, you know, interfere with the earthly things that we want to do. In one of the states that I was in back in the back in the West, one of the pastors there was telling me, I said, people here structure their lives around around skiing and being outdoors and all of that, and they'll show up at church if they want to. And he says it's endemic, uh, you know, in the churches in our state. Hmm. And so I'm not just speaking about anything here. This is, 
you know, we've just got an entirely wrong consumeristic mindset about, about church that is not, you know, it's not biblical. And the outcome of it is going to be catastrophic eternally for a lot of people who thought they were safe. Yeah. Sufficiency of the word, it, it comes out, whether we believe it or not, comes out in the way we live our lives and That's the priorities it. of the life. That's it. And you know, you know, Nathaniel. The other, the other thing is, people should not resent a pastor saying those kinds of things to them. That's the thing. You know, we say things like that. I say things like that because I'm concerned for the eternal souls of everybody that comes under the sound of my ministry. That's why I say these things. I'm concerned for the eternal soul. I'm not trying to run anyone's life. I'm just saying, you know, this is what Scripture says. This is what Scripture is. This is what Scripture does. Why doesn't that matter to you more than it apparently does? I say that for their good, not for, you know, not to, not to be mean. Well, and it's straight out of Hebrews 10. It Don't is. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And then right after that are significant warnings about your eternal soul. Yeah, and then you go into the whole, you know examples of the faith in hebrews 11 you know and you know they were they were sawn in two they were torn by lions you know this is not being a christian is not always convenient Mm -hmm. and it's ridiculous it is ridiculous for people to think that they would actually die for christ like the heroes in past church history it's ridiculous for anyone to think that they would die for christ if they can't get up in the morning and and be in church on a consistent basis with the people that they've made a public commitment to Mm -hmm. you know we're just fooling ourselves if we think that that we're going to shine in the moment of testing if we can't shine in the little things of of faithfulness when no one's watching yeah yeah these are the people that we'll be with for eternity, Lord, many of them, and we're giving attention to the eternal word of God being preached. Yeah, what, and just, and and just remember the context in which I started all of this. I love Truth Community Church. Yeah, I'm right. proud of the people of this church, but, you know, I, I've, got to, I've got to speak the balance of everything, yeah. not just what tickles people's ears and makes them happy in the time and, you know, you know, and lets everybody say, well, he didn't step on my toes. I, I don't play that game, especially at this age. We need convicted weekly. I do too. Yeah. We agree on a lot of things. Have we ever it wasn't had it? always have, that way? Have though. we ever had a disagreement? We haven't had a serious disagreement the whole time you've been here. No. Not at all. Nope. In fact, we we have a joke. Nathaniel and I have a joke about about that and uh, we agree again uh, yeah we agree again <laughs> what do you know because uh, it's, it's like that <laughs> and it's a blessing to have that uh, working relationship and harmony um, I remember the first time I met you and you said something about particular redemption and I wasn't there yet um, I and, said that the uh, first time at McAllister's first time at McAllister's Wow. I actually kept my mouth shut, which was unusual for me. Uh, <laughs> I see mine was flapping, which is not unusual for me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that over, over several years, we, we would meet occasionally and, and uh, got to know each other better. And the Lord clarified my understanding uh, about some things. But one of the questions that came in was uh, just asking when we first met, we, we had some differences 
uh, theologically and probably even philosophically um, as, as regards the ministry. Um, but how did we approach the relationship and did we work through anything, you know, subsequent to that? How did we get to this place? You know, why didn't we just say, oh, this guy's not on my page? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, not not every master's grad and BJU grad would <laughs> be a hand-in-glove fit for ministry like like the two of us for sure. have been. And and I think you should probably speak to this as much as I am because I don't I don't even remember that particular redemption comment, for example. <laughs> but um, you know, when it comes, you know, uh, Nathaniel, we we came here in. 2012, and you came about six months later, having done an exhaustive survey to see if there was a Bible teaching church in the area. You said, no, that needs one in eastern Cincinnati. And then your heart must have sank when you saw, oh, man, there's art. You, you weren't, that's not even fair. You showed up, <laughs> you know, when I had already made my plans. But um, the way the question was framed was, how did you, how did we work through those differences? And from my perspective, there wasn't anything to work through. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it wasn't like we identified differences and now what are we going to do with them? And, you know, we had to work through difficult conversations and things like that. It wasn't like that at all. Um, you know, I mean, Nathaniel, I, I uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure exactly what your trajectory would be uh, with where you were when we first met, but I loved you and I respected you. You know, you you uprooted your family for the sake of the Word of God. You came to a place where you thought the Word of God was needed, and you started doing what you knew in ministry, and you started preaching through the Word verse by verse. How could I not love a guy like that? How could I not respect a guy like that? And so Nathaniel and I just, you know, we just got together periodically, and it wasn't a matter of working through anything. It was just a matter of of loving each other in the common pursuit of the truth. And your convictions developed as you preached through Scripture. And there came the time as we were, I'm speaking far too candidly tonight, but as, as you and I talked about the disaster that is Crossroads Church <laughs> and their philosophy of ministry and their preaching Super Bowls and all of the goofy stuff that they do, we came to the conviction that we would be more effective working together than we were apart. And so we moved, we moved in that direction. One other thing I want you to say, I, I can't, there is no measure. You could, you could not measure the depth of my love and respect for Nathaniel Pringle. You couldn't. Um, and I've mentioned this multiple times, but it had, it had such a great impact on me. In 2015, when the Supreme Court Obergefell decision came out, you know, mandating so-called homosexual marriage on all 50 states, I determined to preach my series on homosexuality. I sent out an email to every reformed pastor that I knew in the area, in this area, in the Cincinnati area, and I don't care who gets offended by this, I really don't, and, and said, here's what we're doing. We ask for your support. If you come, we'll give you time on the platform to read scripture, to pray, we'll do anything. You know, we just invite you to come and stand with us as we stand for scripture in this defining moment in the history of our country. Words to that effect. None of them showed up except Nathaniel. No one, no one even responded to the email, as I recall. 
said, I can't be there, but I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Nothing like that. Nathaniel showed up. That told me everything I needed to know about, about Nathaniel as a man. And listen, any, any, you know, to the extent that there was any doctrinal differences, you know, I don't even remember them. Um, but, you know, you can't, you can't teach that kind of, of, of courage and desire to stand alongside another man in ministry. Um, and, you know, you distinguished yourself. And I'm eternally grateful to God that you did because it knit my heart to yours like David to Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Ever since, Nathaniel has proven to be the man that I thought he was and, and more. How did we work through things? We respected and loved each other. And over time, God joined us together. Amen. And I can get my Mutual Admiration Club mug out here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the same is true in just seeing it was, it was the character of Don, his obvious love for the Lord. Again, the similar uh, circumstances of uprooting from a place to come to another place for the sake of, of preaching the Word of God. And uh, those other things work themselves out in time. And it was just pursuing, uh, pursuing the Lord, loving and respecting one another. And the Lord worked graciously uh, to bring us together. And Yeah, and we're trusting the Lord to keep us together long, long term. Amen. That's right. And it's a privilege to stand against error together, too. Yeah, there you go. And just shoulder to shoulder with firmness, with conviction. My blood pressure is starting to get up when I think about crossroads, Roman Catholicism, you know, just, just those horrible uh, deviations from truth that infect this area. And so it's a privilege to stand together like this. Glad the Lord worked the way he did. Yeah, me too. Why don't we close on that one? We'll save the other one for another time. That sounds good. So you want to pray for us? I will. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love first for us that sent Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And we thank you for uh, the privilege of being part of the body of Christ as Christ builds his church the church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. And Lord, we thank you for this body. We thank you for each family and individual that is represented uh, as part of Truth Community Church. We pray for your continued blessing uh, on the ministry here. We pray that you would continue to grow us in our likeness to our dear Savior, Jesus Christ that you would continue to cultivate a deep love and affection for one another uh, that is rooted and grows out of our love for you, our love for Christ, and the work of the Spirit of God in us. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to engage in these questions, and uh, we pray that you would uh, encourage us as we go to our places of uh, work and, and labor for the rest of the week that we would be effective Uh, in our Christian influence as salt and light uh, in this dark world. Uh, We love you, and uh, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Pastor Don Green from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information, Don's complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. 
This message is copyrighted by Don Green. All rights reserved.